Section 13 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 13. After this day, there was another pretty long interval during which Dr. Johnson and I did not meet. When I mentioned it to him with regret, he was pleased to say, Then, sir, let us live double. About this time it was much the fashion for several ladies to have evening assemblies where the fair sex might participate in conversation with literary and ingenious men animated by a desire to please. These societies were denominated blue stocking clubs the origin of which title being little known it may be worth while to relate it one of the most eminent members of those societies when they first commenced was mr stillingfleet whose dress was remarkably grave and in particular it was observed that he wore blue stockings Footnote. Mr. Benjamin Stillingfleet, author of tracts relating to natural history, etc. Boswell. Mrs. Montague, so early as 1757, wrote of Mr. Stillingfleet, I assure you, our philosopher is so much a man of pleasure, he has left off his old friends and his blue stockings, and is at operas and other gay assemblies every night. End of footnote. Such was the excellence of his conversation that his absence was felt as so great a loss that it used to be said, We can do nothing without the blue stockings. And thus, by degrees, the title was established. Miss Hannah Moore has admirably described a blue stocking club in her Bas Bleu, a poem in which many of the persons who are most conspicuous there are mentioned johnson was prevailed with to come sometimes into these circles and did not think himself too grave even for the lively miss monckton now countess of cork who used to have the finest bit of blue at the house of her mother lady galway footnote miss burney thus describes her she is between thirty and forty, very short, very fat, but handsome, splendidly and fantastically dressed, rouged, not unbecomingly, yet evidently, and palpably desirous of gaining notice and admiration. She has an easy levity in her air, manner, voice, and discourse that speak sick, all within to be comfortable. She is one of those who stand foremost in collecting all extraordinary or curious people to her London conversaciones, which, like those of Mrs. Vasey, mix the rank and literature, and exclude all beside. Her parties are the most brilliant in town. Miss Burney then describes one of these parties at which were present Johnson, Burke and Reynolds. The company in general were dressed with more brilliancy than at any rout I ever was at, 
as most of them were going to the Duchess of Cumberland's. Miss Burney herself was surrounded by strangers, all dressed superbly, and all looking saucily. Dr. Johnson was standing near the fire and environed with listeners. Leslie wrote of Lady Cork in 1834, Notwithstanding her great age, she is very animated. The old lady, who was a lion-hunter in her youth, is as much one now as ever. She ran after a Boston negro named Prince Saunders, who, as he put his Christian name Prince on his cards without the addition of Mr., was believed to be a native African prince, and soon became a lion of the first magnitude in fashionable circles. She died in 1840. End of footnote. Her vivacity enchanted the sage, and they used to talk together with all imaginable ease. A singular instance happened one evening when she insisted that some of Stern's writings were very pathetic. Johnson bluntly denied it. I'm sure, said she, they have affected me. Why, said Johnson, smiling and rolling himself about, that is because, dearest, you're a dunce. Footnote. A lady once ventured to ask Dr. Johnson how he liked Yorick's Stern's sermons. I know nothing about them, madam, was his reply. But some time afterwards, forgetting himself, he severely censured them. The lady retorted, I understood you to say, sir, that you had never read them. Oh, no, madam, I did read them but it was in a stage-coach. I should not have even deigned to look at them had I been at large. End of footnote. When she, reader's note, Miss Monckton, some time afterwards mentioned this to him, he said with equal truth and politeness, Madam, if I had thought so, I certainly should not have said it. Another evening, Johnson's kind indulgence towards me had a pretty difficult trial. I had dined at the Duke of Montrose's with a very agreeable party, and his grace, according to his usual custom, had circulated the bottle very freely. Lord Graham and I went together to Miss Monckton's, where I certainly was in extraordinary spirits, and above all fear or awe. In the midst of a great number of persons of the first rank, amongst whom I recollect with confusion a noble lady of the most stately decorum, I placed myself next to Johnson, and thinking myself now fully his match, talked to him in a loud and boisterous manner, desirous to let the company know how I could contend with Ajax. I particularly remember pressing upon him the value of the pleasures of the imagination, and, as an illustration of my argument, asking him, Well, sir, supposing I were to fancy that the naming the most charming duchess in His Majesty's dominions were in love with me, should I not be very happy? My friend, with much address, evaded my interrogatories and kept me as quiet as possible, but it may easily be conceived how he must have felt. Footnote. 
next day i endeavoured to give what had happened the most ingenious turn i could by the following verses to the honourable miss monckton not that with the excellent montrose i had the happiness to dine not that i late from table rose from graham's wit from generous wine it was not these alone which led on sacred manners to encroach and made me feel what most i dread johnson's just frown and self-reproach but when i entered not abashed from your bright eyes were shot such rays at once intoxication flashed and all my frame was in a blaze but not a brilliant blaze i own of the dull smoke i'm yet ashamed i was a dreary ruin grown and not enlightened though inflamed victim at once to wine and love i hope maria you'll forgive while i invoke the powers above that henceforth i may wiser live the lady was generously forgiving returned me an obliging answer and i thus obtained an act of oblivion and took care never to offend again boswell end of footnote however when a few days afterwards i waited upon him and made an apology he behaved with the most friendly gentleness while i remained in london this year johnson and i dined together at several places footnote on may the twenty second horace walpole wrote boswell that quintessence of busybodies called on me last week and was let in which he should not have been could i have seen it after tapping many topics to which i made as dry answers as an unbribed oracle he vented his errand had i seen dr johnson's lives of the poets i said slightly no not yet and so overlaid his whole impertinence End of footnote. i recollect a placid day at dr butters who had now removed from derby to lower grosvenor street london but of his conversation on that and other occasions during this period i neglected to keep any regular record and shall therefore insert here some miscellaneous articles which i find in my johnsonian notes his disorderly habits when making provision for the day that was passing over him appear from the following anecdote communicated to me by mr john nichols in the year seventeen sixty three a young bookseller who was an apprentice to mr whiston waited on him with a subscription to his shakespeare and observing that the doctor made no entry in any book of the subscriber's name ventured diffidently to ask whether he would please to have the gentleman's address that it might be properly inserted in the printed list of subscribers i shall print no list of subscribers said johnson with great abruptness but almost immediately recollecting himself added very complacently so i have two very cogent reasons for not printing any list of subscribers one that i have lost all the names 
the other that I have spent all the money. Johnson could not brook appearing to be worsted in argument, even when he had taken the wrong side to show the force and dexterity of his talents. When, therefore, he perceived that his opponent gained ground, he had recourse to some sudden mode of robust sophistry. Once, when I was pressing upon him with visible advantage, he stopped me thus. My dear Boswell, let's have no more of this. You'll make nothing of it. I'd rather have you whistle a scotch tune. Care, however, must be taken to distinguish between Johnson when he talked for victory and Johnson when he had no desire but to inform and illustrate. Footnote. He owned he sometimes talked for victory. End of footnote. One of Johnson's principal talents, says an eminent friend of his, footnote, the late writer Honourable William Gerard Hamilton Malone, end of footnote, was shown in maintaining the wrong side of an argument and in a splendid perversion of the truth. If you could contrive to have his fair opinion on a subject and without any bias from personal prejudice or from a wish to be victorious in argument, it was wisdom itself, not only convincing but overpowering. He had, however, all his life habituated himself to consider conversation as a trial of intellectual vigour and skill, and to this, I think, we may venture to ascribe that unexampled richness and brilliancy which appeared in his own. Footnote. Dr. Johnson, being told of a man who was thankful for being introduced to him, as he had been convinced in a long dispute that an opinion which he had embraced as a settled truth was no better than a vulgar error, nay, said he, do not let him be thankful, for he was right and I was wrong. Like his uncle Andrew in the ring at Smithfield, Johnson, in a circle of disputants, was determined neither to be thrown nor conquered. Johnson, in The Adventurer, seems to describe his own talk. He writes, While the various opportunities of conversation invite us to try every mode of argument and every art of recommending our sentiments, we are frequently betrayed to the use of such as are not in themselves strictly defensible. A man heated in talk and eager of victory takes advantage of the mistakes or ignorance of his adversary, lays hold of concessions to which he knows he has no right, and urges proofs likely to prevail on his opponent, though he knows himself that they have no force. J. S. Mill gives somewhat the same account of his own father. I am inclined to think, he writes, that he did injustice to his own opinions by the unconscious exaggerations of an intellect emphatically polemical, and that when thinking, without an adversary in view, he was willing to make room for a great portion of the truths he seemed to deny. End of footnote. As a proof at once of his eagerness for colloquial distinction and his high notion of this eminent friend, 
he once addressed him thus blank we now have been several hours together and you have said but one thing for which i envied you he disliked much all speculative desponding considerations which tended to discourage men from diligence and exertion he was in this like dr shaw the great traveller who mr daines barrington told me used to say i hate a cui bono man upon being asked by a friend what he should think of a man who was apt to say non est ante that he's a stupid fellow sir answered johnson what would these tanty men be doing the while Footnote. the friend very likely was boswell himself he was one of these tanty men i told paoli that in the very heat of youth i felt the non est tanti the omnia vanitas of one who has exhausted all the sweets of his being and is weary with dull repetition i told him that i had almost become forever incapable of taking a part in active life End of footnote. when i in a low-spirited fit was talking to him with indifference of the pursuits which generally engage us in a course of action and inquiring a reason for taking so much trouble sir said he in an animated tone it is driving on the system of life he told me that he was glad that i had by general oglethorpe's means become acquainted with dr shabir indeed that gentleman whatever objections were made to him had knowledge and abilities much above the class of ordinary writers and deserves to be remembered as a respectable name in literature were it only for his admirable letters on the english nation under the name of battista angeloni a jesuit johnson and chebir were frequently named together as having in former reigns had no prelection for the family of hanover Footnote. i recollect a ludicrous paragraph in the newspapers that the king had pensioned both a he-bear and a she-bear boswell end of footnote the author of the celebrated heroic epistle to sir william chambers introduces them in one line in a list of those who tasted the sweets of his present majesty's reign footnote witness ye chosen train who breathed the sweets of his saturnian reign witness ye hills ye johnson's scots shebeers hark to my call for some of you have ears heroic epistle end of footnote such was johnson's candid relish of the merit of that satire that he allowed dr goldsmith as he told me to read it to him from beginning to end and did not refuse his praise to its execution footnote. in this he was unlike the king who writes horace walpole expecting only an attack on chambers bought it to tease and began reading it to him but finding it more bitter on himself flung it down on the floor in a passion and would read no more End of footnote. 
goldsmith could sometimes take adventurous liberties with him and escape unpunished beauclerc told me that when goldsmith talked of a project for having a third theatre in london solely for the exhibition of new plays in order to deliver authors from the supposed tyranny of managers johnson treated it slightingly upon which goldsmith said ay this may be nothing to you who can now shelter yourself behind the corner of a pension and that johnson bore this with good humour johnson praised the earl of carlyle's poems which his lordship had published with his name as not disdaining to be a candidate for literary fame Footnote. they were published in seventeen seventy three in a pamphlet of sixteen pages and with the good fortune that attends a muse in the peerage reached a third edition in the year to this same earl the second edition of byron's hours of idleness was dedicated by his obliged ward and affectionate kinsman the author in english bards and scotch reviewers he is abused in the passage which begins no muse will cheer with renovating smile the paralytic puling of carlyle in a note byron adds the earl of carlyle has lately published an eighteen-penny pamphlet on the state of the stage and offers his plan for building a new theatre it is to be hoped his lordship will be permitted to bring forward anything for the stage except his own tragedies in the third canto of child harold byron makes amends in writing of the death of lord carlyle's youngest son at waterloo he says their praise is hymned by loftier harps than mine yet one i would select from that proud throng partly because they blend me with his line and partly that i did his sire some wrong End of footnote my friend was of opinion that when a man of rank appeared in that character he deserved to have his merit handsomely allowed Footnote. men of rank and fortune however should be pretty well assured of having a real claim to the approbation of the public as writers before they venture to stand forth dryden in his preface to all for love thus expresses himself men of pleasant conversation at least esteemed so and endued with a trifling kind of fancy perhaps helped out by in square brackets with a smattering of latin are ambitious to distinguish themselves from the herd of gentlemen by their poetry rarus enem feme sensus communis in ilia fortuna juvenal satire eight line seventy three and is not this a wretched affectation not to be contented with what fortune has done for them and sit down quietly with their estates but they must call their wits in question and needlessly expose their nakedness to public view not considering that they are not to expect the same approbation from sober men 
which they have found from their flatterers after the third bottle if a little glittering in discourse has passed them on us for witty men where was the necessity of undeceiving the world would a man who has an ill title to an estate but yet is in possession of it would he bring it of his own accord to be tried at westminster we who write if we want the talents in square brackets talent yet have the excuse that we do it for a poor subsistence but what can be urged in their defence who not having the vocation of poverty to scribble out of mere wantonness take pains to make themselves ridiculous horace was certainly in the right when he said that no man is satisfied with his own condition a poet is not pleased because he is not rich and the rich are discontented because the poets will not admit them of their number boswell boswell it should seem had followed swift's advice read all the prefaces of dryden for these our critics much confide in though merely writ at first for filling to raise the volume's price a shilling End of in this i think he readers note johnson was more liberal than mr william whitehead in his elegy to lord villars in which under the pretext of superior toils demanding all their care he discovers a jealousy of the great paying their court to the muses to the chosen few who dare excel thy fostering aid afford their arts their magic powers with honours due exult but be thyself what they record Footnote. wordsworth it should seem held with johnson in this when he read the article in the edinburgh review on lord byron's early poems he remarked that though byron's verses were probably poor enough yet such an attack was abominable that a young nobleman who took to poetry deserved to be encouraged not ridiculed End of footnote. johnson had called twice on the bishop of killaloe footnote dr barnard formerly dean of derry End of footnote, before his lordship set out for ireland having missed him the first time he said it would have hung heavy on my heart if i had not seen him no man ever paid more attention to another than he has done to me and i have neglected him not wilfully but from being otherwise occupied Footnote. this gave me very great pleasure for there had been once a pretty smart altercation between dr barnard and him upon a question whether a man could improve himself after the age of forty-five when johnson in a hasty humour expressed himself in a manner not quite civil dr barnard made it the subject of a copy of pleasant verses in which he supposed himself to learn different perfections from different men they concluded with delicate irony johnson shall teach me how to place in fairest light each borrowed grace from him i learned to write copy his clear familiar style 
and by the roughness of his file grow like himself polite i know not whether johnson ever saw the poem but i had occasion to find that as dr barnard and he knew each other better their mutual regard increased boswell end of footnote always sir set a high value on spontaneous kindness he whose inclination prompts him to cultivate your friendship of his own accord will love you more than one whom you have been at pains to attach to you johnson told me that he was once much pleased to find that a carpenter who lived near him was very ready to show him some things in his business which he wished to see it was paying said he respect to literature i asked him if he was not dissatisfied with having so small a share of wealth and none of those distinctions in the state which are the objects of ambition he had only a pension of three hundred a year why was he not in such circumstances as to keep his coach why had he not some considerable office johnson sir i have never complained of the world nor do i think that i have reason to complain it is rather to be wondered at that i have so much my pension is more out of the usual course of things than any instance that i have known here sir was a man avowedly no friend to government at the time who got a pension without asking for it i never courted the great they sent for me but i think they now give me up they are satisfied they have seen enough of me upon my observing that i could not believe this for they must certainly be highly pleased by his conversation conscious of his own superiority he answered no sir great lords and great ladies don't love to have their mouths stopped Footnote. sir joshua once asked lord b to dine with dr johnson and the rest but though a man of rank and also of good information he seemed as much alarmed at the idea as if you had tried to force him into one of the cages at exeter change End of footnote this was very expressive of the effect which the force of his understanding and brilliancy of his fancy could not but produce and to be sure they must have found themselves strangely diminished in his company when i warmly declared how happy i was at all times to hear him yes sir said he but if you were lord chancellor it would not be so you would then consider your own dignity there was much truth and knowledge of human nature in this remark but certainly one should think that in whatever elevated state of life a man who knew the value of the conversation of johnson might be placed though he might prudently avoid a situation in which he might appear lessened by comparison yet he would frequently gratify himself in private with the participation of the rich intellectual entertainment which johnson could furnish strange however it is to consider how few of the great sought his society so that if one were disposed to take occasion for satire on that account 
very conspicuous objects present themselves Footnote. yet when he came across them he met with much respect at annick he was he writes treated with great civility by the duke of northumberland at inverary the duke and duchess of argyle showed him great attention in fact all through his scotch tour he was most politely welcomed by the great at chatsworth he was honestly pressed to stay by the duke and duchess of devonshire on the other hand mrs barbauld says i believe it is true that in england genius and learning obtain less personal notice than in most other parts of europe she censures the contemptuous manner in which lady wortley montagu mentioned richardson the doors of the great she said were never opened to him End of footnote. End of section 13.